Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Since the beginning of time, we humans have craved connection. And throughout history, who you met was usually determined by where you lived, your class, your friends, and who your parents knew. Well, in 1995, something was introduced that revolutionized not only how people met, but how they dated, fell in love, and also who they married. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. And this episode is all about the birth of online dating. Depending who you talk to, online dating has either reshaped society or destroyed it. But everyone can agree that dating sites like Tinder, Bumble, and Match.com are now a normal part of our lives. Being able to connect to someone millions of miles away wasn't always so easy. In fact, the first step on our path to online dating was through newspaper personal ads. In 1695, the very first personal ad appeared in a London periodical. It read, A gentleman, about 30 years of age, that says he has a very good estate, is willing to match himself to a good young gentlewoman that has a fortune of £3,000 or thereabouts. For centuries, personal ads like that were a staple of the newspaper business. By the 1980s and 90s, there were nearly 2,000 publications offering personal ads at around $120 a pop, which was a huge revenue stream for the papers and magazines that carried them. Here's how it worked. If you saw an ad that was appealing, you could call a 1-900 number, enter a four-digit code that had been listed, and you would hear the voice behind the ad. If you liked what you heard, you could leave a message at a cost of $2 or $3 a minute. If you didn't want to call, you could always send a handwritten letter of response, perhaps with a photo, to a P.O. box listed in the ad. Sometime later, the recipient would then decide whether to contact the potential suitor. Basically, an old-fashioned swipe left or right. In the 80s and 90s, there were also matchmaking companies that allowed customers to record a video of themselves and their ideal partner. Members could search through the company's library of videos for an annual membership fee of $2,000. A hilarious compilation of these types of matchmaking videos surfaced on the internet a couple of years ago. I like an attractive woman, someone who might look like Christy Brinkley or Jacqueline Smith. I have a very strong sense of humor. I've read recently that everyone thinks they've got one, but my friends do agree that I do. Might not appear it, but... Uh... Semi-crazy. Kind of your typical research mathematician, I guess. Inexplicably, that last guy is dressed in a Viking costume. Anyway, personal ads and dating services were expensive and they were a lot of work. Gary Kremen, a young Stanford grad living in San Francisco, who was spending a couple of hundred dollars a month looking for a love connection, thought that there had to be a better way. So that was a big 90s phenomena. You know, you'd put an ad in, you'd pay to put the ad in, and then if someone wanted to reach you, you'd call a 900 number and they would charge you per minute. 
And I spent a lot of time doing that, and it got me thinking about it. Around the same time, Kremen had started a small software company with a friend. It was 1992, the very early days of the internet. But Kremen was all in. He was on the lookout for ways to use the new technology to make some money. One day at work, that idea came to Kremen. It was an idea that would revolutionize dating forever. His software company usually got orders from clients via fax machine, but more and more people were starting to use email. And one day, one of those emails sparked a thought. My business partner walks in and goes, hey, we got like a $600 purchase order. We're gonna eat this weekend. And I said, oh, I see it. Um, and I'm looking at it, I go, well, it came from, you know, maybe a, I think it was an admin at HP. I go, Ben, but do you think she's cute? And he turns to me and go, what are you talking about? You know, do you think that, you know, she could be the one for me? And he's like, oh, what are you talking about? I go, well, what if we didn't have a purchase order? What if there was a picture attached? You know, and he's like, what, huh? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, a picture. So that was kind of one of the genesis. I said, you know, what if I could write some software that in, in that I could write a, a, write a profile down so instead of getting a purchase order, I could get a picture and then I could put everyone in a database and search for number one. That was kind of some of the early ideas I had. You see, sending a photo by email was a brand new concept. The first email with an attachment was sent just a few months earlier in March 1992. So the timing was perfect. Kremen decided he would use this new technology, email and email attachments, to build the first online dating service. He imagined a database of daters that included detailed profiles of each person based on a questionnaire they filled out. People like himself, who were frustrated with the limitations of personal ads, could search the database anywhere, anytime for a potential match. Photos would be attached and an anonymous email so you could instantly and easily reach out to someone who caught your eye. Entrepreneurs do best when they understand the problem and they're trying to solve their own problem. I was looking for a date. The personals weren't always working, didn't work well. They weren't rich, vibrant and vivid. Okay, they were just text on a page. I thought it had to be much more, it had to be interactive. And Kremen imagined much more than that. He envisioned online classifieds for everything, jobs, apartments, automobiles. But first, he would start with a dating service and he would call it Match.com. After successfully raising money for the venture, Kremen set up a shop in a dingy basement office in the South Park area of San Francisco. According to the book, The Player's Ball, he worked around the clock eating cold burritos and sleeping on the floor. He hired a computer engineer who dropped out of a PhD program at Cornell, and they smoked weed and listened to the Grateful Dead as they built the site. Here's author David Kushner. Gary is an eccentric, you know, he really um, went out to Stanford to get an MBA during the early 90s in a period of time that was before the internet age as we know it now. And this is still when um, there wasn't the World Wide Web, you know, the internet was still 
super kind of net niche people had not yet anticipated that it would be anything like it is today, and let alone a, a commercial platform. And Gary is a guy who, you know, he 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 wasn't like a buttoned up um, Stanford. Um, MBA like most of his classmates, but he was more of a, the kind of visionary in a tie-dye shirt. Kremen focused on creating a questionnaire that match customers would answer when they joined the site. With the help of male colleagues, Kremen came up with a list of questions that were important to them. Things like education, style of humor, occupation, religion. But they soon came to a realization that men weren't the customers. They needed to target women. Match.com would only work if it could attract and keep women using the service. It needed to be enticing to women. Gary, you know, was smart enough to realize that, you know, him and a few other guys trying to figure out how to get women to date online wasn't really going to work um, and that they needed to... To, to get women behind the scenes as well. You know, as an example, when he was trying to create a questionnaire that everybody would answer when they went on to match, he, you know, some of the questions for the women were like, um, you know, how much do you weigh, for example? And he didn't think anything of it because he was, you know, he, but, but all the women who saw it thought, you can't ask us how much we weigh. No one's going to want to do that. So Kremen hired Fran Mayer, a former classmate from Stanford Business School, to bring a female perspective to the team. She would be the director of marketing for Match.com. But there was another major challenge that we take for granted now, and that was how would customers get their photos on the website? People didn't have digital cameras, didn't exist. So to do it, you'd have to scan it in. Most people didn't have scanners. Hardly anyone had scanners. But what I knew was Kinko's had scanners. I happened to go in there. So I go, my idea is, well, if you tell me your zip code, I'll write a little uh, program that will tell you the five closest Kinko's and you can walk in and get your picture scanned. Just like that, Kremen found a workaround and Match.com launched on April 21st, 1995. Initially, it was a free service supported by ads that would eventually become subscription-based once membership grew. But to get there, they needed more women on the site. Author David Kushner says Mayer initially had staffers create fake female profiles. So it was kind of a catch-22 where they realized we have to make get women on here so that other women feel comfortable. So they had women within the company create these fake accounts that would, um, I mean, not only just for the women, but just for, the, for anybody, you know, to basically populate the site. It was a bit of fake until you make it, but it definitely took off very quickly. Within four months, Match.com had hit 10,000 users. The site was a huge success, and it was just the beginning. Almost a year later, in early 1996, it had over 100,000 users. Competing dating sites popped up, the Singles Online Network and the World Wide Web Dating Game, but none could really hold a candle to Match.com, and it owned the market. But there were a couple of barriers that were preventing it from growing faster and further. The biggest one was that only 5% of people in the U.S. had internet access in the mid-90s. 
and many of those who did only had access to it at work. We know this because Match's servers would see a traffic spike every day after lunchtime. But more importantly, there was still a stigma attached to online dating, and some feared flirting and opening themselves up to strangers online. People were super worried, especially women, about safety and security and remaining anonymous. Not only that, the idea of sharing your wants and desires for everyone to see is normalized now, but it was definitely alien to everyone back then. So Match gave its members anonymous email addresses that forwarded to their real accounts. A big deal before throwaway webmail accounts were widespread. And they emphasized that potential matches wouldn't be alerted when you browse their profiles. They would only be notified when suitors contacted them. As users were busy trying to make their match, the company also courted the press. Mayer told Fast Company in 2015 that they had to sell the idea of online dating as a whole, not just Match.com. They had to dispel the notion that online dating was limited to lonely nerds and weirdos. So Mayer and her public relations director, Trish McDermott, appeared on national talk shows and newscasts as did some of the service's success stories, couples who met on the site and their more TV-friendly users. The PR blitz worked because by 1998, just three years after their launch, the site grew to a whopping 1.8 million users. The classic rom-com You've Got Mail may have added a helping hand with this. The Nora Ephron film tells the story of two people in an online romance who are unaware they're also business rivals. It was the third time fan favorites Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan played romantic interests, and their charming portrayal of modern star-crossed lovers helped dissolve any remaining stigma around online dating. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. Match PR director Trish McDermott told Fast Company that she believes You've Got Mail fundamentally changed the conversation about online dating to something positive. And that fear you were going to meet a creepy stalker type person dissipated when instead your match could be Tom Hanks. By the 2000s, Match had serious competition from new sites like eHarmony, Plenty of Fish, and OkCupid. Niche dating sites also took off, with services from Christian Mingle to VeggieDate, targeting specific interests, religions, and racial groups looking to find like-minded people. And then in 2012, Tinder was introduced, and it quickly became more than a dating service. It was a cultural phenomenon. Within a year and a half, the smartphone app was logging 500 million swipes and 5 million matches per day. It took what Match.com started in 1995 and revolutionized it again. But for a generation that didn't want to sit down at a computer to search for a date. It was as quick and easy as a swipe right or left. And for some, it's highly addictive. Today, the online dating sector is booming. It's worth $3 billion in the U.S., has had exponential growth of over 140% since 2009. 
According to market research numbers, 55 million people in North America use dating apps, and that number is expected to grow by 25% this year. So what has this all meant for society? How have services like Match.com that started as a way for an unlucky in love guy to find a date and possibly make some money, how has it changed us? Well, for the past 10 years, Stanford sociologist Michael Rosenfeld has been researching just that. A study he published in August 2019 revealed that meeting someone online has become the most popular way for couples to connect in the U.S. It found that about 39% of heterosexual couples reported meeting their partner online. It's a pretty incredible statistic. Almost 40% of couples met their partner online. That number is up from only 22% in 2009. And the numbers for the gay community are even higher. An earlier paper co-written by Rosenfeld found that nearly 70% of same-sex couples met online. Rosenfeld concludes the internet has displaced the roles that family and friends once played in matchmaking. And Rosenfeld believes there's nothing wrong with that. He says there is no evidence suggesting that relationships formed online are any different than relationships formed in a bar, at work, or at church. In fact, there are some benefits to looking for love online. First, there's definitely a bigger pool to choose from compared to who you could meet through your family or your best friend. This is especially important for people who are isolated, people who don't live in a big city or work from home. And for some members of the LGBTQ community, dating apps have been a small miracle, helping users more safely locate other LGBTQ singles in an area where they might otherwise be hard to find. Dating apps are also extremely important in countries where homosexuality is illegal or socially unacceptable. Another upside to online dating, there's more information available on potential matches. So if you're looking for a particular type of person, dog-loving vegan who enjoys true crime podcasts, chances are you'll be able to find them. Like with everything, online dating isn't perfect. Some believe that because dating apps are anonymous, dating has gotten a lot ruder. If you go on a date with your cousin's friend, you're probably not going to be a jerk because you don't want it to get back to your cousin. If you met through an app, there's no such connection and no incentive for you to be nice if you don't particularly feel like it. Some skeptics also point out that there's way too much choice too many options, which makes it harder to choose a mate and stay with them. There is some truth to that. For example, there's been studies that have shown that in other areas of life, like at the grocery store, when you're looking at 14 kinds of orange juice, it can be hard to commit to just one. But sociologist Michael Rosenfeld, who conducted the Stanford study, says he doesn't believe orange juice is the same as a loving partner. His data doesn't show that people who meet online are more likely to break up. It did, however, find an interesting trend as it relates to tying the knot. People who meet online get married faster. On average, those who meet offline get married after 10 years. Those who meet online, 
Well, they married on average after just four years. Another study by researchers from the University of Essex and the University of Vienna suggests that online dating might also be responsible for more interracial relationships. They discovered that after Match.com was launched in 1995, interracial marriage increased immediately. The spike went even higher in 2004 when online dating really gained popularity. Then, after Tinder was introduced, another huge shift. From the early 2000s, new interracial marriages jumped from 10% to 17%. The authors note that there are other factors which have contributed to an increase in interracial marriages, but the data to support the influence of online dating is compelling. Rosenfeld's research aside, the jury is still out on whether marriages that start online are more likely to succeed. Separate studies have given different results. A paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2013 found that participants who met their spouse online reported that they were, on average, slightly more satisfied with their marriage and slightly less likely to separate or divorce than those who met in offline venues. The authors suggested that might be because dating sites are attracting people who are more interested in getting married. I think it's important to note, however, that study was done before Tinder had taken hold of the online dating market. A year later, figures from a study at Michigan State University in 2014 suggested that married couples who met online are three times more likely to divorce than those who met face-to-face. Today, Match.com, the site that started it all, is part of Match Group, which also owns Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and Hinge. It went public in 2015 and reported revenue of $1.7 billion in 2018. In September 2019, the Federal Trade Commission launched a lawsuit against Match Group, saying it used fake ads in an attempt to trick hundreds of thousands of subscribers into buying subscriptions similarly to how Match.com first started. Match said that the FTC was overstating the impact of fraudulent accounts, and it said that the majority of scams the Trade Commission had cited were spam, bots, or other users on the site. The case is still pending. You might be wondering what happened to the man who started it all, Gary Kremen, the guy who dreamed up a new way to meet a date that has now revolutionized society. Here's author David Kushner. He is a person who has had a profound impact on lives around the world. Uh, although people, you know, he's not a household name. He's not a Mark Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. But, um, you know, as he joked once, he, he said that he's responsible for over a million babies, which... You know, it could be more babies than that at this point just by figuring out online dating. Two years after it went online, Kremen walked away from Match.com over disagreements with the board. Among other things, he wanted to branch out into the LGBTQ community, and they didn't. He left with only $50,000. But don't worry too much, Kremen did okay. In fact, he's a bit of a legend in Silicon Valley. 
He founded and invested in multiple startups and had the incredible foresight to register a bunch of domain names in the 90s, including sex.com. In fact, he ended up in a lengthy court battle over sex.com when someone else claimed ownership of the domain. He eventually won the case and was able to sell sex.com in 2006 for $14 million, which at the time was the highest price paid for a website address. Maybe like me, you're wondering, did he ever meet his soulmate? Yeah, I'm with someone now. I think it's the match. You know, it's the match. It's it's pretty good. But you know, it took a long time. Maybe I was too picky, and I think that's a uh, a precautionary tale for people. You know, don't be too picky. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this look back at online dating, one of many '90s inventions that has changed the world. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to our guests, Gary Kremen and David Kushner. Kushner's book, The Player's Ball, A Genius, A Con Man, and The Secret History of the Internet's Rise was a huge help in researching this episode. It covers the story of the man who stole sex.com from Kremen and the crazy fight to get it back. It is a wild story. You should check it out. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps other people find the show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and check out some of our older episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.